Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we gather this morning to hear of your steadfast love and salvation in Jesus Christ, and we put our trust in you. Come among us by your Spirit, make your word known to us, teach us the way we should go. For to you do we lift up our soul in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our first hymn is 101, Come Thou Almighty King. Acknowledge your sin to God, and do not hide your iniquity. Confess your transgressions to the Lord, for he forgives the guilt of our sin. Let us pray together. Almighty and most holy Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the plans and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, 
that we might hereafter live a godly and righteous life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. We respond together. Praise be to God. People have described our culture as an entertainment kind of culture. We have all kinds of games, and not just board games or card games or anything like that, TV games, but actually our culture itself kind of gets turned into a game, and we can see this played out in many different ways. There are games that we can play and watch, but there are also the games um, of just trying to earn more money, trying to somehow uh, best ourselves over someone else, all kinds of games, and they're all throughout our culture. Brothers and sisters in Christ, being a Christian is not a game. We are not taught this in Scripture. We are taught to have joy and to uh, have hope and to rejoice in what Christ has done for us and live a life, a Christian life that way. But it's not a game. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the more we learn about that, the less we think it's a game. In Revelation, we hear of the blood of the people of God being spilled on the ground, and they were called the martyrs. They were Jesus' disciples who were called to give their very lives for him. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, we hear that the Christians were exposed to abuse and affliction and imprisoned. So it's easy for us to sit in our culture where there is a lot of entertainment and where we can, can kind of begin to see life that way and forget that following Christ is actually a um, very serious matter. And there are many of our brothers and sisters around the world who would, it would never even enter their minds that it's a game, it's a matter of life and death. Christians give up their wealth and public honor and their family and dreams and goals and their time for Jesus Christ. It's not a game to live as a Christian who only do what we want to do and make no sacrifice. That's not the Christian way and the way of following Christ. In Christ, we offer ourselves to God, and that's why we come to worship rather than sleep in or watch a game on TV. In Christ, we offer ourselves to God in we stop committing immorality and indulging ourselves, which also becomes a game in our culture, just how much pleasure we can find. We have been joined with Christ, who is the offering of God's sacrifice on the cross, and so now our lives become an offering to God. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 667, God is my strong salvation. Confound me 
lions, my soul with courage wait. His truth be your affiance when faint and desolate. His might your heart shall strengthen, His love your joy Let us now bring our prayers together and pray in Jesus' name. Almighty and merciful Father, we had eyes and could not see. We were captive in our sin. We had ears and could not hear. But with your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit, you have opened our eyes and our ears. And we see your mercy and kindness to us. You've sent us help when we are in trouble. You've given us rest and refreshment when we were tired. You've comforted our hearts and minds with your gracious word and are about to do the same in a moment. You have brought us friends when we have felt alone. And we perceive that these are gifts from you, and we give you thanks this day for these. Oh, Father, we also see the faithlessness in this world and the sin and immaturity in the church and the suffering of the nations. We ask you to bring a speedy and just end to the conflict with Ukraine and the tensions with Israel and Palestine, the Iran, and also the um, escalations going on with China. We also pray for the de-escalation of violence in our own cities. Here are prayers for the nations that are in turmoil in this world. For those who ignore you and live like they do not depend upon you, which is a lie, but, but uh, many are deceived that way, we pray that they would know Christ and his sacrifice of himself for our salvation, and in humility that they would praise him. We pray that we would be given the grace to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to them in word and deed, so that more people might confess faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray for our Jewish neighbors here around our church that we might know them better and have meaningful discussions about the salvation you have accomplished. It looks impossible to us, but we pray you would open doors. Hear our prayers. For the political affairs of this country, we pray. We pray that just and fair laws would be made to bring justice and uphold what is morally right that the government would be kept within its proper place and not overextend itself. Help us to obey your word and show honor to whoever our elected officials are. And we pray that the lust for power would not make our leaders overbearing. We pray that freedom for your church would remain intact. We pray also that you would make the church's voice be heard as it bears witness to what being human is in the light of your creation and redemption, and most of all, as it bears witness to Jesus Christ and our salvation in him. Here are our prayers for our country. For other churches who serve you and struggle with being faithful Christian communities in this world, we pray for Pilgrim OPC as they call a new pastor. 
We pray for Community OPC in Kalamazoo and their pastor, Jonathan Cruz. We also remember Grace Covenant Church in Sheffield, Ontario, as they continue to bear witness to Christ in, in that place. May they, all of these, learn Christ and proclaim him. We pray as well for our missionaries to Uganda, for Charles Jackson, Christopher Verdick, James Folkert, Mark Van Essendelf, Angela Voskel, Leah Hopp, Tina DeYoung, and Tony Curto in Ethiopia. We also remember their families who are as much involved as, as these men are and these, these women. So here are prayers for them and for these churches we have named. Gracious God, you are full of loving kindness and compassion, and we are a people who need such loving kindness and compassion. If it were not for the strength and riches of your grace, we would flounder and fall away. O Father, renew us again with your word. Make us the people of Christ, your possession. Heal us and bind up our wounds. And particularly, give ear to our prayers for this congregation and those we lift up to you, for Terry and Eduardo for Shirley and Jeff and Fawn and Elise, for our friends Becky and Judy, Bill, Tom, Phil, Angie, Josh, Mrs. Mesner, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. For our work to teach the knowledge of Christ, may we teach more people Christian, the Christian faith and our salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray we would have enough money to continue the ministry of the church. And we pray that you would draw our hearts to you and guide our minds and fill our imagination and control our wills that we would be wholly yours and no part of us would be left out of that. And then use us as you will, always to your glory and for the benefit of others. Father, by your gracious benefits to us through Jesus Christ, may your kingdom come and the new life of the Spirit fill the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, we say and conclude our prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
Please be seated. Won't you join me in prayer as we come now to this reading and preaching of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come with great anticipation to hear your word this morning. We pray that through your spirit, our minds would be made receptive, that our hearts would be made fertile ground. And that in the hearing and the receiving of your word, that we would be strengthened again, refreshed, renewed, and reminded of our need for Christ. For we do pray this in his name. Amen. Our first reading comes from the prophet Micah, chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Listen now to God's word. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The Psalter response printed in the bulletin comes from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And have sorrow in my heart all the day. Sorry. How long? Sorry about that. How long must I take counsel in my soul? And have sorrow in my heart all the day. 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Our epistle reading then comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Again, God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then finally, our gospel reading comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 9 to 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise up against parents, And have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. We're in that part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus has left the temple which is where the various Jewish leaders confronted him while he was teaching. He had entered Jerusalem in that triumph of um, the days before Passover, and then the next day had gone into the temple and was teaching there. But during that time, the uh, priests and elders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, all were coming to him, and and there was conflict going on inside the temple. And we, Jesus has just now left the temple. At the beginning of chapter 13, so verse 1 of chapter 13, Mark says Jesus came out of the temple. Inside the temple precinct, he was in the sacred religious space of Israel. But outside the temple, where was Jesus? He stepped out into the city and the world. 
It was the city that would prove hostile to him. It was the world dominated by the Romans, and their presence was fully visible even in Jerusalem. Even though Jerusalem was a sacred city with a temple in it, we may say Jesus stepped out of the temple into the world and was now um, out in the, in the city with everyone else. Now, the closest we Christians come to that is when we leave worship right here and we step out into the world. Whichever way you go, we step out and go and leave our worship here. That's probably the closest parallel to what we have going on with Jesus. And this is not to imply that our meeting place, our church, is like the temple in Jerusalem, where there was so much conflict against Jesus. At least, it shouldn't be that kind of a place in a church, right? Where, where there's great conflict, just like there was going on in the temple when Jesus was there. It's horrible when local churches fall into great conflict with each other. It might be over worship, it might be over theology, or it might be over the activities of the church or the lack thereof, whatever the case, it is a horrible thing when there's great conflict inside the church. And Christians might justify the conflict, we're so good at coming up with reasons and defending it, we can accuse each other of starting the conflict, but at the end of the day, conflict tears up the church and it's not good. It ruins churches, it detracts from our witness to the world, it displeases Christ. The church is not to be like the temple when Jesus was there in conflict with Jesus right in the middle of it. Remember, he's right there in the middle of this conflict when it was going on. Here in the church, Jesus is right in the middle also, but as our Lord and Savior. We worship him and we sit under his word and he feeds us and because of his grace we can love one another, forgive one another, and we are his witnesses to the world. The church with Jesus in the middle as its Lord and Savior resolves its conflicts. It's not that conflicts don't come, but it resolves them well and it's a place with great unity and peace. So here we are on the Lord's Day worshiping Jesus and then we step out into the city and the world. We go out from a place that lacks great conflict, and we enter a place where we face enormous opposition and attack. It's a world that is hostile to us in many ways. Now, I've made this point many times, and I'll make it again today. Our text this morning was first written for Mark's Christian community. The first people to listen to the gospel of Mark was Mark's church and the Christians in the first century. Mark collected the material for his gospel, he wrote it, and it was passed around among the first churches, starting with his own church. Tradition in the church has it that the gospel of Mark is attributed to the Mark who traveled with Barnabas and then later was probably with the apostle Peter. The sources for the gospel of Mark are the apostles' preaching and teaching, collections of Jesus' sayings, and what was handed down in the church like the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Mark used these resources to write the gospel for his church. And all of this, of course, was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some indicators in our lesson this morning that our lesson was first for Mark's church in that century, in the first century. And these indicators are most clearly seen in verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus says, For they will deliver you over to courts, and you will be beaten in synagogues. Mark's first readers would have been extremely familiar with that. The courts, or the councils as the ESV translates it, were the local Jewish courts that were called the Sanhedrin. This is probably to correct some of the thinking we have about the Sanhedrin. Each town had its own Sanhedrin, which was a court. 
The one that we think of when we hear the Sanhedrin, you know, in, in talking of, in the scripture, is usually we think of the Sanhedrin that was in Jerusalem. And they, of course, had their court. That was the great court, the most important court of all the different Sanhedrins, because it was in Jerusalem and was made up by the leaders, the, the ultimate leaders in, in, the, um, in Judaism. If someone was, was judged disobedient or heretical, then the punishment... Uh, punishment was imposed by these courts, which was whipping up to 39 lashes. So that would be the punishment imposed on someone uh, among the, the people there who either had been disobedient or had, uh, was judged heretical. And apparently it was carried out inside the synagogues. So that's where the people were whipped by the judgment of the court. It was uh, according to the law laid out in Deuteronomy 25 in terms of the limit of the whipping. It speaks there of 40 minus 1, but it was done inside the synagogue. That's kind of startling, isn't it? Thinking about coming to the same place where you worship and you also see people whipped in punishment. So most of the first disciples of Jesus were Jews, and they were regarded by their fellow Jews as apostates because they followed Jesus. And if they were brought before the local Sanhedrin, they would have been punished with the whip. In other words, this is a very pointed text that's speaking right to those Christians who would have been experiencing it. What Jesus says in verse 9 speaks right to those who first heard Mark's gospel. Now, Jesus also says in verse 9, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Well, the first Christians also had to face trial by Gentile rulers. And there are several examples of this in the book of Acts with the apostles, such as when Paul was brought before the tribunal in Corinth, or when Paul and Silas were dragged before the magistrates in Philippi and they were beaten and thrown in prison. Many people in the first century had to stand in the courts and before the tribunals, and they were punished. This was the common activity, common oversight in these various towns. But Jesus is talking about the Christians who had to do so for his sake. So this is very specifically being punished for being a Christian. The suffering Jesus is talking about are peculiar to persecution for following him and not just any kind of suffering. So we need to focus this this in. Christian discipleship means suffering persecution. The early church experienced such persecution, and there are many stories of it that have come down to us in the church. There are stories in the Bible of the followers of Jesus who suffered persecution, sometimes even to death, like Stephen in Acts, or Paul and Silas, or those unnamed Christian martyrs mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. A generation or two later, there are the accounts of Polycarp and Justin who suffered persecution and martyrdom. So these stories have come down and it, it, it was a continuing thing in the church. As the gospel goes out into the world, the church that proclaims that gospel will be persecuted. Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He refers to the extent of the preaching of the gospel. It will go out to all the nations, and as it does so, there will be the persecution of Jesus' followers all the way out. So here we are today, the proclamation of the gospel has gone out this far where we are today, which is quite a ways from Jerusalem, right? And we are Jesus' followers, which means we will suffer persecution. Jesus makes it clear in our text that Christian discipleship means suffering persecution. 
And we don't suffer like the first Christians who were whipped in the synagogues, thank goodness. To be sure, many Christians today have had to stand in a courtroom and be sentenced to prison for teaching and proclaiming Christ, but usually not the same way the first Christians did, where they actually had to stand and explain what they believe and and just basically give an account for what they believed. And then they would be challenged to offer sacrifices at the Roman altar in town rather than to worship Jesus Christ. There's an Iranian pastor named Yusef Nadarkhani who was sentenced to death in, his, in Iran for his Christian faith. Nadarkhani was 32 when this happened. He was in prison for three years and waited execution, execution for refusing to renounce his Christian faith. And then new charges were brought. And what's interesting about this is it obscures, these new charges obscure the reason why he was really there. And this is often what happens today. The real reasons that Christians are being persecuted are obscured or hidden behind some other kind of of accusation. So these new charges brought speculation that, uh, that the Iranian Supreme Court would be bringing a security based crime, like he's a spy or he stole important information, or something like that. Um, That's often, that's what's interesting about this story, that's often the charge that's brought to cover up prisoners being held and sentenced on faith-based charges. So they brought these charges, um, but what happened is his charge was reduced to evangelizing Muslims, which carries a three-year sentence, And he'd already served the three years, so the end result was that he was acquitted of apostasy charges, accused of evangelizing, and then released from custody. But the whole point of the story is that oftentimes they're trying to cover up and hide the real reason. And that happens today. Persecution often comes in different ways today than it did for the first Christians, but it still comes. It can still be physically violent, like when the 21 Coptic Christians were killed by ISIS soldiers on the beach in Libya because they refused to deny Jesus Christ. Hostility against Christians for preaching Christ can happen in other ways, like fines, jobs lost, lawsuits, public disdain. All those things happen as a form of persecution. Sometimes politicians cast doubt on Christians who are appointed to public office because of their Christianity. But again, it gets obscured. It's because they follow Christ, really, is the reason. And it's suggested that this disqualifies them from service because they will be biased. And I always think to myself, when someone says that, oh, they're going to be biased, are they really not real? Do they not think that everyone's biased, that everyone's coming from somewhere, Everyone has some kind of pre-commitments that they have about, even an atheist does. So everyone's coming from somewhere. Will they be able to, to do their job well is probably a better question to ask. But a lot of times Christians are singled out by certain politicians and they um, are uh, accused or attacked because they really, because they're following Jesus even though there's a smokescreen involved. At campuses throughout the country, Christians are regularly demeaned, debased, and targeted for their faith in following Christ. And many times, these Christian college students will hear from others about how their religion only has hateful, bigoted, and privileged believers in it. And then churches, of course, have been set on fire, sometimes with Christians inside in our country. These are all forms of persecution today. Naturally... There are, ki- there are all kinds of feelings and fears that rise up within us when we hear this. It's probably not 
the most favorite kind of sermon to hear when we, when we hear someone preaching about persecution. And there, the feelings and the fears come up. If not, if we don't have those feelings and fears, then we're not listening to Jesus and the gospel. <laughs> Following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel means persecution. If that doesn't sober us, then we're not listening. Jesus does speak many words of comfort to us in other texts in Scripture. So I want you to hear these words because he does comfort us. For example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will be with his disciples, and he comforts us with these words, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blesses his disciples and promises them a reward. He says, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. (coughs) For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. And furthermore, Jesus appointed his apostles for the church, and they they visited the churches, they started churches, they preached the word and the gospel to the churches, and they elaborated on Jesus' words for the church in this world of persecution and antagonism. And that's what we heard from 1 Peter 4. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Fear of suffering and loss is natural when we are told we will be persecuted, and Jesus comforts us and strengthens us in that regard. However, that's not what Jesus is talking about in our lesson this morning. So it's not that Jesus doesn't talk about it, but that's not what he's doing in our, in our lesson this morning. He's talking about our speech when we are persecuted. Verse 11, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand for what? For what to say. It's a matter of speaking. It's a matter of words. It's a matter of giving testimony to Jesus and the gospel when we are persecuted. This is the kind of anxiety Jesus is talking about here in our lesson. What do we say when we are persecuted as Christians? What do we say to our persecutors? Well, one way this can go is that we say nothing. We withdraw and hunker down, waiting for the persecution to pass. We might develop a theology that reinforces our saying nothing. I would call it the say-nothing theology. The say-nothing theology could argue that speaking of Jesus and the gospel to unbelievers is a waste of time because sin has blinded their minds and hardened their hearts, and they will not hear what we say no matter how simple we make it. Or the say-nothing theology could assert that actions speak louder than words. Therefore, even if we say nothing, the persecutors can still see that we follow Jesus by our worship, by how we treat other people, by how we interact with each other in the church. What is it that that line attributed to St. Francis of Assisi? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's an attractive argument with some biblical support. Christian deeds are part of our witness to Christ, but not at the expense of speaking of Jesus in the gospel. See, followers of Jesus Christ are to bear witness to Jesus in word and deed. We are to use words, and that is what Jesus is talking about in our text this morning. Preaching, proclamation, speaking. Anxiety and persecution might cause us to say nothing of Jesus and the gospel. 
Another way we might go, uh, we, another way we could go in persecution is to try and make Jesus and the gospel acceptable to the culture. And there is a fine line here. We must speak to the culture, and that requires addressing the gospel to our contemporaries, not as if they lived back in the 17th century or in the first century, but speaking to these people who live here today. It's a grave mistake to just rattle off verses from Scripture or use technical terms from theology when we speak of Jesus and the gospel to our antagonists. If we do this, it's just going to fly right over their heads, the heads of our persecutors. However, redefining Jesus and the gospel so that it sounds good to the ears of our persecutors is no longer bearing witness to Jesus. It's telling those who persecute us what they want to hear. And if we do that, guess what will happen? The persecution will stop. No surprise there. There's no need to persecute those who believe what you believe. Sadly, there are Christians and churches that do this, churches that speak a gospel that affirms whatever sexual identity we choose for ourselves, that God loves you just the way you are, they say. So some even agree with our culture that God made us the way we think we are. Well, the Christian witness to the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. Every single one of us has a disordered sexuality and identity that needs to be freed from sin, reordered, and reconciled to God. God does this through Jesus Christ. And while God does love sinners, he loves them in order to forgive them and set them right. God does not simply love you the way you are. He loves you in your brokenness in order to transform you and give you new life with him. The concern in our lesson this morning is when we are persecuted, will we be witnesses and speak for Jesus or not? But Jesus does more than leave us with a challenge. That would be, okay, go out there and speak. With our lesson this morning, he gives us power and courage to proclaim the gospel when we suffer persecution. He gives us power and courage. First of all, and we see this in our text, first of all, he warns us, verse 9, be, but be on your guard, for they will persecute you. Jesus tells us what we can expect, but he also tells us that he knows when we are persecuted. Jesus knows. He does not overlook it. He is not apathetic to it. He's like an older brother watching over his younger siblings, actively engaged with them, telling them to watch out as he leads them along. He is our Lord, and he cares for each one of us so that when we are persecuted for his sake, he will vindicate us and judge those who attack us. And this has been an enormous comfort for the church through the ages. In Revelation, is a picture of the persecuted church. John says, it's Revelation 7, when John says, When the Lamb opened the fifth seal... I'm sorry, it's Revelation 6. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's that cry that you hear often in the Psalms, How long, O Lord? It's a cry of faith. Jesus' warning not only tells his disciples that following him means persecution, it also tells us that he sees and judges those who persecute us, and he stands up for us. Jesus stands up for us. The Lord's power is in this. 
There are Christians and churches all over this world that are being persecuted, and they are strengthened by Jesus defending them as he does with this warning. It's a warning of defense. Be, but be on your guard. Second, Jesus encourages us by telling us that our speaking the gospel in persecution is the Holy Spirit speaking. Verse 11, do not be anxious beforehand what you were to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, we might interpret this like earbuds connected to a smartphone. I was thinking of my wife when I wrote that. When we are persecuted, we will hear the, the idea is that when we're persecuted, we'll hear the Holy Spirit buzzing in our ears like a call from someone on the phone. If that's what we think, then we're going to miss much of what Jesus is telling us in our text. The Holy Spirit gives us what to say for the hour of persecution. The hour here is not a 60-minute time period. Hour here is used in an eschatological sense. It's the time of the church's persecution, which began when Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the gospel, and it's continued ever since, and it will continue until he returns again. So that's the hour. Any given day, the persecution may be stronger for some Christians than for others, but somewhere in this world, the church is being persecuted. And in point of fact, they say today that more people are being martyred for following Christ than any time before this in the history of the world. Now, what does the Holy Spirit give us in this time? Well, the good news of Jesus Christ that we learn in the church. The Holy Spirit gives us the preaching and teaching of the gospel, not only for our own understanding, but also so that we can be witnesses for Jesus when we're persecuted. Perhaps the most obvious words the Holy Spirit gives to us in persecution are simple sentences. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is the one who saves us from our sin and God's judgment. Those were simple confessions in the early church, and they continue to be powerful confessions today against those who would persecute us. But there's something else in what Jesus says. The Holy Spirit is with us when we are persecuted. See, don't miss that. The Holy Spirit's with us. It's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He's with us. The Gospel of Mark does not say much about the Holy Spirit. I was reflecting on that as I was thinking about this and how the Gospel of John, there's a lot in there, and there's a fair amount in Luke. Uh, But in Mark, there's not a whole lot. I mean, yes, the Holy Spirit's there at Jesus' baptism and... and, um, transfiguration, these things, but there's not a lot said about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Mark, but here's a spot, here's a place where Mark is talking about the Holy Spirit and dwelling with Jesus' disciples so that they can bear witness to Jesus with them. In in John's Gospel, if you want to hear more about it, Jesus has much to say about the Spirit's presence but not here in Mark, not as much. But this, is a very, this passage stands out because of what it does say about the Holy Spirit. It's implied, but it's there. The best part of this is that the Lord is with us by the Holy Spirit. We are not alone as we follow Christ, even when we are persecuted. Our persecution does not mean that Jesus has abandoned us or turned us over to those who hate us. Yes, they come at us, they inflict their harm, but that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't with us and has abandoned us. And those who persecute us would definitely try to convince us of that. There is no God. Where is your God? These are the kind of things you even hear in the Bible. It's what, um, I think it was, was it Sennacherib, when he was out in front of Jerusalem, 
and the Babylonians or the Assyrians had come to attack the city, and that's what he kept saying, where is your God to stop us? We're an army of 100,000. But the Lord was present. And he's present with us when we are persecuted, not just as an observer, but as our defender and as our refuge. Finally, Jesus gives us courage by promising us that there is the blessing of salvation for those who endure. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus sets our salvation before us, not to tease us or trick us with a fantasy, oh, if only that were true, if it was really there, it's not, you know, it's an illusion. No, that's not what he's doing. He has secured a wonderful blessing for us. Suffering persecution is hard and painful, but Jesus takes us through it and gives us the victory. So now we must go out into the world and we will be persecuted, but Christ gives you courage and strengthens your heart to be his faithful witnesses. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice from sin, for sin, and also to lead us as his disciples. Give us grace to hear his word and to speak the gospel to those who persecute us, and so remaining faithful to him, may we receive the crown of life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And now we stand and confess our faith, having heard the word of God. And remember, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, are both great creeds that have, the Holy Spirit has taught the church. The church has encapsulated that teaching. And these are things that, it, maybe not precisely the way they're said here, we don't just rattle them off, but these give us content to say when we are persecuted. So let us confess what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one substance with the Father, whom all things were made who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was carnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 505, I'm Not Ashamed to Own My Lord.
words of institution for this meal, which sets it apart. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus instituted this holy supper, he used real bread and real wine, which are signs of his body and his blood. But also, we shouldn't miss the obvious fact that they're real food for our bodies. By doing this, he reveals that his death and resurrection is for the physical part of us as well as the spiritual part. So the Lord created our bodies and redeems them to love him and obey his word along with our hearts and minds. These are powerful words in our culture, which has a Gnostic tendency in it to basically dismiss or or uh, demote the importance of the material creation of our bodies and all these things, and elevate the will and the reason. And so, uh, Jesus, by instituting this meal, shows that the whole person and everything about the material world as well as the spiritual are um, subject to his redemption. When you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, know that your body is redeemed by Christ, and so is the creation in which you live. It is my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all those who have been baptized who profess their faith in Jesus Christ publicly and are communicative members of a Christian church to come to this, his table. It is the Lord's table, so he invites us. We don't just come on a whim or out of our own assertion of ourselves, but he invites us to feast with him, which is a great privilege. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life in Christ and His salvation. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give Him thanks and praise. Almighty God, we do give you our thanks and praise. For you have created us in your image, you have given us a world full of good things, but most of all, you sent your beloved Son, who though he was equal with you, became a man and lived among us as a servant of your salvation. He was obedient even to die on the cross so that we might pass from death to life. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so, with all of heaven, we praise your great and glorious name, and we say with them, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And now we pray that you would consecrate this bread and cup so that our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup may be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we profess our faith with the church and we dare not come and receive this meal without the church and its faith. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We thank you that even as there is one bread and one cup, so the church is one, and together with all your holy people, we have been united to Christ. We praise you and glorify you forever, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom all good things come, and who has blessed us with the life-giving Spirit. To you is all the honor and glory, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup, and remember Christ's body and blood given for you, and be strengthened by his grace, and let us take and eat together. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you for nourishing us with these heavenly gifts. May our communion in Christ strengthen us in faith, build us in hope, and make us grow in love. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Final hymn is number 570, Faith of Our Fathers.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the blessings of the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Just uh, taking a look at the calendar in the bulletin, um, classes, we have our Christian Ed classes today, as usual, and let me see, it's coming up here, I re- remind you about the proposed outreach, the uh, hope for a prayer meeting to be established at Lawrence Tech this fall. And I believe there'll be an informational meeting on campus prior to school starting, and we plan to have a presence there. So in two weeks. Okay. So pray for that outreach, if you would. And that's all I have, other than what's coming up in the bulletin. Nothing really imminent here. So anything else? Eduardo Guzman. Very good. We're grateful to the Lord for healing Shirley. That is all we have, so please enjoy some time uh, with coffee and friends before classes start in a few minutes. Thank you.